0: Welcome to the Stepable Travel Podcast, hosted by Nicolette Lasky. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 24 of the Acceptable Travel Podcast. Today I've got Monique. Would you like to introduce yourself, Monique?
1: Hi, my name is Monique Murphy. I'm a Paralympic swimmer. I have just turned 29, uh, which means it's been nine years since I acquired my disability.
0: Yeah. So would you like to tell us a bit about how you acquire your disability?
1: Yeah, so it was 2014. Um, I was living at university accommodation, uh, studying a Bachelor of Social Work. And I fell from a fifth-floor balcony and landed on a glass roof. It's been nine years, and I still have no memory of that night. There's about eight hours that I can't account for. From landing on the glass roof, I got a very severe cut to my neck, and that was the most life-threatening injury. So due to that, there were no blood alcohol tests done or drug tests, uh, but the doctors do believe my drink was spiked that night. Uh, the My neck um, was obviously cleaned up. Uh, one of the main issues when I first arrived in hospital is that from landing on a glass roof, I had a lot of glass splinters. Um, so that's what put me in a very dangerous position, um, having those glass splinters very close to the main arteries in my neck. So very lucky to still be here, lucky to still be talking nonstop. Um, part of that accident, I broke probably let's say every bone in my foot (laughs) in my right foot Um, and that was uh, amputated um, as soon as I got to hospital so I woke up one week later and over the next six weeks we did a number of surgeries to fix a number of broken bones um, and then I also had a elective below knee amputation and that was elective um it was taking into account the doctor's advice which was that i should progress to below knee um but also being given that uh control in that situation to make the decision myself uh was really powerful and helpful for my recovery and it gave me access to better prosthetics below knee prosthetics are far uh, more advanced than partial foot prosthetics uh, also a lot more expensive which is unfortunate but um, the trauma was to my foot. So by having the surgery taken up to below the knee, there was no trauma to that part of my body. So uh, it was sort of like a textbook surgery. Everything went really well, and then that allowed me to have a very quick recovery. So I was back in the pool training just five months after that accident.
0: Yeah. So hey, what are your advice in avoiding doing biking?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a hard one. I think my experience, um, I did a gap year where I had my drink spiked as well. And then obviously my accident, it's a really hard one. Everyone deserves to go out and, you know, we shouldn't have to be worrying about someone putting something in our drinks. Um, not having any memory, you know, makes it very difficult. I've met plenty of people who do remember um, that feeling of not having control of their body, and things like that. So, you know, I do, I still enjoy the occasional drink. I haven't let it um, stop me from engaging and enjoying something, um, you know, that I am allowed to do. I think it's just a certain amount of awareness. So very, very simple things. I always make sure I'm the one who's getting my own drink. Um, If I, when I was younger, if I I met someone and they're like, can I buy you a drink? I'll, I'll go with them to the bar. Yeah, little things like that just to minimize um that not knowing. And the time that I was overseas when I had my drink spiked, my friend and I were constantly leaving the table and leaving our table where our drinks were. So you just don't know what's happening when your backs are turned. So it's it's a bit more about that awareness. You still go out, you can still have a good time, but being a little bit more aware. And I remember when I was at the uni village. There was a girl who always drank her drinks from a sippy cup, like a, a baby sippy cup, and that's because it had a lid on it. And then that way, if you know, when she went um, if there were parties or things like that, it was just that extra fail-safe technique, which um, I think is re- really, really clever. So there's lots of little things: take your own drinks, make sure there's a lid on them if you can, and keep your drinks on you at all times.
0: Yeah, do <laughs> the And, Yeah, um, how do you? That into women back into women and shuffles thought turn around.
1: Well, I'd been swimming since I was about six years old. So I grew up as a swimmer, always wanted to go to an Olympic Games, um, you know, train eight times um, a week all through high school. So I was very uh, adept in the water. And between when I stopped swimming and my accident was about, in total, about a, two years. So... I had given up swimming when I moved to Melbourne for university and it was through hydrotherapy that I got back into the water and my body realised very quickly how much easier it was to move in the water than it was to move on land and very simply it made me happy to be in the water. So when you go through a major trauma, uh, it's always important to make time for the things that make you happy and for me that was swimming. So I just continually built on it uh there were challenges it's obviously very frustrating um you know i'd dive off the blocks and i'd still push with my right leg even though i don't have a right leg <laughs> so there were a lot to adapt to um but it's i think swimming is my natural talent so it made the most sense to go back to that after the accident
0: yeah and then what it like to travel to glasgow in 2015 for the world game
1: yeah, the first world championships was my first trip overseas after the accident, so the great thing about being on a team is you're travelling with doctors and physios and coaches. So if anything happens, you have people right there to help you. Um up until then, a lot of my flying had been domestic. I had a wheelchair, I'd be relying on my parents. So and they are incredibly capable. Um, it's a little bit more reassuring to have people who haven't had, you know, three knee operations like my dad. So (laughs) to have people you can really rely on is really, um, helpful. And being on a team of 30 other athletes who all have disabilities, um, I could learn a lot from them and a lot of how they did things. But I remember, um, I had to be very mindful of my stump swelling on the plane, which, is exactly what it did so trying to get off the plane and disembark and my leg would not fit on because my stump had swollen so much I couldn't get it um, to attach properly so and you know you're with a team everyone's moving very quickly you got to get from the airport to the hotel get to your training session um, and I found that quite overwhelming having to stand in those really long lines on a leg that's not attaching and obviously getting quite quite painful. So it took a took a little bit to um, test out what sort of compression I needed um, on my leg and how to, um, I don't wear my leg on the plane, I do take it off. If I leave it on, it's gonna, just gets very uncomfortable and it's probably gonna swell anyway in there. So that was probably one of the major um, challenges, but I also had to travel with my wheelchair It had only been a year since my accident, so um, I was required to bring it as sort of a fallback. So it was very helpful to load all my um, suitcases on the chair and just push that. But being aware of, um, you know, where your chair goes, how it's treated by airport staff, (laughs) uh, if it gets broken. uh, It also got lost on the way home. Um, So I was without it for a while and... Even though I had my prosthetic leg, you just suddenly realise if I have a fall, if I get an ingrown hair, something really, really small can suddenly put me without a prosthetic and I need that wheelchair as a fallback. So it was quite unsettling um, when they when they did lose it and they were very quick to find it because I was strong minded when I talked to them, when I got the chance to talk to them and. Um, but yeah, I think missing wheelchairs and having them broken on flights is unfortunately a very common um, occurrence. And if you're travelling for sport and performance, that's really unsettling. And if you're travelling just to go on a holiday, it adds a significant amount of stress, which is very, very frustrating.
0: Yeah. And then, as you said before we went on to the recording, that you had some issue when we went to Abu Dhabi, at airport security.
1: Yeah, so we the world championships were in Glasgow, so we flew through um, um, Abu Dhabi, I believe. And going through the security, um, obviously the leg will set off the um, security, and they have to do they've got to pat you down. Normally, um, I'll wear something that shows my legs, so I'll be wearing shorts or leggings, and my legs very clearly exposed, Um, but with the culture over there, the women, if you need to be patted down, you have to go into a private um, booth and the security guard I had, I could just tell she did not know how to pat me down with my leg um, as it was, and I could tell she was quite confused. So I took my prosthetic off just to show her, you know, it starts at the knee, finishes here, um, and I've I've never taken my leg off through a security process because um, that it's part of my rights. I don't, don't have to. Um, but that's the one time I did just to sort of help bridge that cultural gap um, for that woman. She I don't think she was a bit um a bit surprised.
0: Yeah, and they basically need more education and training with Confederate led and. Probably the whole variety of disability.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think all the experiences I have um, with travelling um, as a person with a disability, it all comes down to how the staff member or person interacts with you and a lot of the time they're not educated um, to the level they need to be or they get very defensive. If they have done something wrong Um it's that defensiveness that comes out straight away, which is quite quite frustrating because a lot of the time it's like, I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm just trying to point out that there's an issue here. And then they just like, oh, well, it's because of this. It's like, doesn't matter why it's there. It needs to be moved. It needs to be changed. I need additional help. And I think it's that lack of education and we need to make sure that education is coming from people with a disability who have lived experience um so that it can be properly understood because i think when you have someone who is polite and you know listens to you properly it completely changes um your interaction with them and it can turn a bad day into a good day or vice versa more often than not
0: <laughs> yeah totally agree with that um what is a different in the ability in Glasgow compared to your hometown?
1: Ooh, it's an interesting one. Again, when you're travelling with a team, everything is um, accommodated for you and set up for you. So we always have a bus taking us to and from the pool. Um, from memory, the pool at Glasgow was quite quite accessible. Um, it was very open space. Um, they had a number of, cube, like, changing cubicles, Um, that were quite large one of the challenges for swimmers is when you're getting in and out of the pool and people obviously put a lot of their gear so like their flippers their pool boys their kickboard everywhere Um, my good leg um, has just had two reconstructions on the knee so hopping around is not my favorite thing to do so it can be challenging when there's a lot of gear around and then you've got prosthetics lying around and wheelchairs lying around it becomes a bit of an obstacle course um, sometimes so yeah that can be a little bit um, a little bit overwhelming but if i you know thinking back to i've lived in melbourne canberra and brisbane and from my experience i'd say brisbane is the least accessible city that I've lived in um a little bit concerning considering we have the uh Paralympic Games here (laughs) in 10 years there's a lot of room for improvement um you know I'm someone who goes in and out of using my wheelchair and every time I am in my chair I am overwhelmed with how inaccessible um simple simple tasks become Um, because I'm usually injured when I'm in my wheelchair I'll really only use it in public with my partner, where I have someone to help me um, and look after me. And because I'm not in it all the time, I haven't developed a lot of the um, day-to-day skills for it. um, And I just don't have the confidence and it's, I just find it incredibly, incredibly overwhelming. Um, But I think one of the big things I would really like to see changed is just people's attitude towards people with a disability. The amount of times I see people parking in disability parks and they don't have permits. It's, you know, you're making the world less accessible for people who need that. But it's their attitude. Oh, I'm just here for a minute. Can you calm down, please? Or I'm just picking up some food. You can always ask me to move. And it's just that, you know, lack of acknowledgement of who we are and what we need um, gets very frustrating. and. You know, if we see, if we have better education and people can understand why we need those things like disability parks or accessible entrances and they're not abused and they're used by the right people, um, I think it just makes the whole experience of having a disability a much more positive experience. So that general, um, general education, and I think a lot of that does come When people watch the paralympics and events like that and they can really see um how we do have how our bodies are different and just what we things that we need to um you know go about our day like our mobility aids things to help us um i think that's a really powerful time and i hope that continues to grow so i have less arguments with people about how just if you're waiting waiting for a friend doesn't mean you get to park in my car space (laughs)
0: Yeah. And then because I saw quite recently on your Instagram page that I'm pretty sure it what where they put cone in accessible part I had also seen it in in my hometown, Sydney, And it just a nightmare for those who need to need it. Yeah, it was
1: One of those situations that made me laugh. So it was at the um, one of the sports stadiums here where I do my um, gym training and there was an athletics event on. So they'd made all the parking at the front of the stadium. There's about four accessible parks and then about another five uh, normal ones. And they made all of them accessible. So they'd gotten these um, like tall, tall cones, um, like the really long, tall ones and they'd stuck pieces of paper on them saying accessible parking only except they put this instead of putting it at the back of the park they put it at the very front of the park so as you as I'm driving in to the park I had to get out of my car move it get back in my car to to drive in and take the space and it's one of those things it makes me laugh because I think someone has tried to make this more accessible. They've increased the amount of accessible parks for people attending the athletics event. But in that effort to make it more accessible, they've made it far less accessible because if I was in a wheelchair, I would have had to get out, drag that sign to somewhere else and then get back in my car, drive in, get back out. Like it would just be infuriating. So, yeah, it's, an, it's another reminder that we need to be having these conversations with people who have a disability. Um, there's a number of um, organisations out there who do um, so like audits and presentations and upskilling workplaces and um, event areas on how to be more accessible because, you know, you can, the intent was it was great intent there. I was like, I want to give you a gold star for intent, but execution, <laughs> you actually made it far less accessible. So I think we need to be engaging with the right people to have the right conversations. And, you know, we look at the rates of employment for people with a disability. They are much lower than what they should be. So, you know, engage with the right people, give them that those job opportunities and, you know, learn from the people who are actually going to be using what you're trying to execute.
0: Yeah. And then we're going to move on to the Rio Power Olympic. So what it like to travel to the Rio Power Olympic.
1: Rio was amazing. Um it's it's one where I didn't have a huge amount of experience of um Rio as a place because you just go straight to the um Straight to the village and then to and from the pool so in terms of getting around um everyday places I'll have to go back and let you know after another holiday but <laughs> it was I think it was, it was interesting just flying different airlines we flew into America for a few weeks first and then from there down to um down to Rio and We stopped through Dallas at one point. That is a large airport (laughs) for a team of people in wheelchairs and without legs. So um, just the whole travel experience is incredibly um, draining as well. And then we'd been, we expected Rio to have a few quirks and a few interesting bits and pieces. So we were prepared, um, didn't have like high expectations. So in the built, uh, it was sorta of stayed in like apartments. Um, and there was on my in mine there was one accessible bathroom which our wheelchair athlete used. And then the bathroom that myself and the other athletes were using didn't have any sort of safety rails or it was quite a step up into the shower. It was a narrow shower, so for me that's good because it the walls kind of just keep me standing anyway. <laughs> um, those little things like that, the, the showers in the uh, at the pool, again, not the, the occasional disability bathroom, um, but as someone who's, I'm always in an interesting position, I'm one of the least physically disabled athletes in swimming, but because I'd acquired my disability so recently, I am someone who needs a little bit more um, assistance so that can be quite quite an interesting line um, to balance. But I remember like a lot of the showers, one of the shower heads is actually turned upside down. So the shower just sort of sprayed up like a fountain. <laughs> um, I think one of the biggest challenges is when you're a swimmer, you're in a wet environment, obviously. So everything's wet around the pool. So it was just about taking a little bit longer to make sure um, you were dry, your shoes were dry decreasing any chances that you're going to slip over on pool deck, there's always going to be water around, um, little things like that. But we had bus services taking us everywhere um, around the village, which, again, is a huge, huge area. Um, There were always buses that we could get around. There were some bikes that you could hire. Um, What I would have liked to see more of or maybe at the next games is things like... um, Electric scooters or electric bikes, because for me to to ride a bike is a lot more comfortable and better for my body than walking, because it um, takes off that pressure going through my legs. So a few more things like that would have been great. Um, but there were athletes who were coming up with their own uh, sort of hacks. So you'd have someone on a bike, and then there was I'm um, holding onto the back of it would be someone in a wheelchair. And there'd be another person behind them in a wheelchair holding on and you'd get these really long lines <laughs> of wheelchair users or they'd be led by someone who had a motorized wheelchair and they'll just sort of snake their way through the village and um it was always it always looked a little bit funny but it was also like oh that's really genius <laughs> really genius so um that's what I really loved about the games was seeing how people just so naturally adapted um to their circumstances, it was uh, really, really amazing to witness.
0: Yeah, that very clever. <laughs> very clever. <laughs> yeah. Um. And then we'd like to talk a bit about your experience recently when you went to Canberra.
1: Yeah, I was down in Canberra just last week. Um, I'm a presenter for Sport Integrity Australia, and we were down at their head office doing some training. And when I arrived at the hotel the night before, there was a big, it was a two-story building and there was a big curved staircase right in the middle. And at reception, they said, okay, you're on level two. And I was like, all right, uh, where's the lift? said, oh, we don't have one. And I laughed because (laughs) I haven't actually come across that um, just yet. And though they were being serious, there was no lift. And I said, well, I've got a prosthetic leg could someone maybe carry my suitcase? Um, I'm about a year post knee reconstruction as well as an ankle surgery. So I'm being very careful um, because things like lifting a suitcase, walking upstairs, you can have, um, can really affect your recovery. And I've had instances where my knee has been a bit iffy. So um, they put me down on the ground level and they, so you just walk down the hall it's in the second building you just go out a door go back in so I'm walking down the hall it's down about seven stairs <laughs> and you cross the road go into the next building and it's up another seven stairs <laughs> and by this point I was like oh I'm just gonna have to do do my best and when I got to the office the next day you know knowing that my work I was like you wouldn't assume hotels wouldn't be accessible so I was like this isn't their fault um and sort of mentioned to them in the future it's probably not the best place to have any para-athletes stay because it was very inaccessible and then someone said oh how are you handling the bathroom because it was one of those bathrooms with the shower over the bath and they can be very risky for me I've only got one leg at the moment I'm showering sitting down just to minimize any um any fall risks and I just sort of replied. I was like, oh, I'm not even not even trying to use that shower. I'm just having all my showers at the pool. And that was when my work was like, oh, we have to move you. And I was quite surprised because I hadn't asked for it. But, you know, there's been situations in the past um, where rooms haven't been ideal and on the team never get moved. It's always, well, you have to adapt. You've no idea what the facilities might be like at a game. You've got to learn to adapt. You've got to learn to... Um, manage it which I can appreciate on some level but I also don't understand why you would increase the risk of injury (laughs) to an athlete Um, so I was moved that day to another um hotel called the Little National in Canberra and it was amazing um you could run laps in that shower it was so it was huge um the bathroom was ginormous all sliding doors so you don't have to worry about um you know maneuvering around them um huge bed it felt like a cloud really and they even had little lint chocolates on the pillow when i arrived and um they were fantastic brought up a shower chair straight away and um yeah it was actually you know i think having a disability was worth the upgrade it was it was amazing but again it was just um you know very polite and attentive staff who went above and beyond to make sure that things were um, good for all their guests, um, I think it's a—it's frustrating. Um, like I've just bought a house, for example, with my partner, and the expectation that if you want a bigger house, you've got to pay for it. And I want a bigger house because it is more accessible for me, but that always comes at a price tag. And it's sort of the same with um, travel and accommodation. You know, if you want more room on the pla- plane, you have to pay for it. And if you want um, a room that's going to be easier to manoeuvre around, you have to pay for it and understand that's how the world works. We need to make money. Um, but I think that's one of the real unfortunate realities for people with a disability is that everything comes at a higher price tag for us.
0: Yeah. And then to wrap it up now, to so thank you for coming on to the terrible Trouble podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to the Accessible Travel Podcast. You can follow Nicolette on his Instagram page lahu 20